3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22. So Galatians 3, 15 through 22. Freedom is a rare jewel that is desired by many and enjoyed by few. On the eve of war with England, the Virginian delegates met together in Richmond at St. John's Church to discuss how they should respond to the conflict that had broken out between British troops and colonial militiamen to the north of them. One of those delegates, a man by the name of Patrick Henry, proposed that every Virginian county muster volunteers to fight for the cause of freedom. And at the end of his address, he asked the men around them, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Well, Henry's love for freedom is commendable. After all, freedom comes at a high cost, and those who do not value freedom more than life itself are doomed to, in the end, be enslaved. But there is a freedom that is greater and higher than being free from the rule of a cruel tyrant. In his book, Practical Religion, J.C. Ryle tells his readers that we ought to value civil liberty, but that we ought not to overvalue it. He says, look higher, further than any temporal freedom. In the highest sense, let us take care that we are free. The freedom that Ryle says we ought to, to take care, to make sure that we have, is a spiritual freedom, a freedom of the soul. It is the freedom, he says, which Christ, it is this freedom which Christ bestows without money and without price on all true Christians. Those whom the Son makes free are free indeed, as we just read in the Gospel of John. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, we read in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Ryle goes on to say, he says, Let men talk what they please about the comparative freedom of monarchies and republics, let them struggle, if they will, for universal liberty, for fraternity and equality. We never know the highest style of liberty till we are enrolled citizens in the kingdom of God. We are ignorant of the best kind of freedom if we are not Christ's free men. Free from guilt of sin, free from the power of sin, free from the slavish fear of God, free from the fear of men, free from the fear of death, free forever. Now, our passage this morning, as I've mentioned, is Galatians 3, verses 15 through 22. And our focus this morning is going to be on how we are to find the freedom that our hearts really long for, the freedom that Ryle described, freedom in the power of the cross of Christ. It is because of the cross that Peter instructs us to live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Servants of God find their freedom in the power of the cross because the cross of Christ is the means by which God has set us free from the enslavement of our sin, from the enslavement of our flesh, and from the rule of Satan. Furthermore, the cross of Christ, we will see this morning, is what secures the blessing of eternal life for all who believe. And that is the focus of our time this morning. Uh, the reason this sort of freedom is uh, such a rare jewel that is desired by many but enjoyed by few 
is that the Bible teaches us that the only way we can have this freedom is through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that reality offends the natural sensibilities of men. The offense of the cross does not change the fact that the only way we can get this freedom is through faith in Jesus. But it is a struggle nonetheless for the world and sometimes for us who have believed. When Paul wrote this letter to the churches who were in Galatia, they were struggling to believe the sufficiency of Jesus' work for them. They were struggling. They knew the gospel, but they were struggling to hold to it. They were being told by certain men that they had to secure their membership in the kingdom of God by becoming indentured servants to the Mosaic law. They were being told that they needed to be circumcised, that they needed to keep the commands of the Mosaic law. And Paul's focus in Galatians 3, up to this point and continuing, is to, has been to demonstrate the power of the cross of Christ. He, he wanted to assure the Galatian believers that they were in fact heirs of God's promises of eternal life, not because of works that they had done or could do, but because they had believed in the one who had fulfilled the demands of the law through his own righteousness. Paul wanted them to understand that they were counted righteous, that they were innocent in the sight of God because Jesus had redeemed them from the curse of their sin and that therefore they were children of the promise, children of Abraham because they had a faith like him and because they had experienced the blessing of a new identity ever since the Holy Spirit had been at work in and among them for their faith. Our passage this morning is part three of Paul's defense of the power of the cross. In it, Paul distinguishes between the purpose of the law and the purpose of grace and why only Jesus can bring us the freedom that we long for. And that's what we want to look at now as we read our passage. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. And once again, I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, Paul has a lot to say 
in this passage. He has a lot to say about the law. He has a lot to say about the relationship it has to the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. And he has a lot to say about the way Jesus fulfills those covenant promises. The key feature of Paul's approach here which is related to the error that the Galatians made when they became enamored with this false gospel as it had made its way into the church, is that Paul sets each one of these elements within its proper place according to the story of redemption. The key idea, the thing that brings all of what Paul has to say about the promise, about who Abraham's offspring is, and even the fact that it's a singular offspring, and then the purpose of God's law is God's plan. It's God's plan. A watch is more than its pieces. Those pieces have to be put in the right place or the watch won't work. In a similar way, the gospel is more than its pieces. There's an order to it, a plan. And seeing that plan is important for us if we're to understand the power of the gospel and the significance of Jesus' Christ, or his, his cross. So the main idea... If you have one of those sermon uh, notes, you'll see the main idea of our, ser- of our text and our time uh, in this passage is this, that God's plan of salvation is the glory of his son who fulfills God's promises and delivers us from sin. God's plan of salvation is the glory of his son who fulfills God's promises and delivers us from sin. My goal this morning is to trace out this plan to show you how God has exalted Christ, how he has made him the fulfillment of all of his promises, and how he has worked to deliver us from enslavement to sin. And my prayer this morning is that God would use our time in this passage to assure you of the power of the cross of Christ as you understand better his plan to make you free in Christ through faith. Now, we learn about the power of the cross when we consider three things, so three points this morning. We learn, about the, we learn to trust the power of the cross when we see God's grand design. We learn to see the power of the cross when we see God's grand design. We also learn to trust the power of the cross when we understand the law's purpose. We learn to trust in the power of the cross when we see God, the, the law's purpose. And finally, we learn to trust in the power of the cross when we receive freedom through faith in Christ. So first we want to begin by looking at this grand design. A flashlight is a very simple and effective way to see things that would otherwise be dark. Every flashlight needs at least three things. Uh, I, I have some awesome flashlights that have lots of pieces. Okay, But think about it very simply. A flashlight at its base needs three things. You need a battery, you need a bulb, And you need some sort of wiring that connects those two things together. But having all those pieces doesn't necessarily mean you'll be able to see, does it? Because a flashlight, in order to work, needs to be connected in an electrical circuit. If you want to be able to see in dark places, then those pieces need to be connected to each other the right way. The churches in Galatia had all of the pieces of the gospel. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that they had those pieces out of order. They weren't following God's design for salvation. And we know that because they were abandoning the gospel of grace that Paul had preached to them, which they had received from him and experienced the power of. And they were instead turning to a distortion of the gospel, which made Christ a means to earn God's favor through works of the law. 
So it's out of order. In verses 15 through 18, Paul demonstrates that while the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law had extremely important roles to play in God's plan of salvation, they did not fit uh, in the plan the way that these false teachers were saying that they did. The covenant that God made uh, with Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai was not on an equal plane with the covenant that he had made with with, with Abraham. The promise God made to Abraham to bless him and to make him a blessing to the whole world was never supposed to be received by doing works of the law. It was always meant to be received by faith. Paul explains the irrevocability of God's promise to Abraham in verses 15 through 18. That's his focus here. And he begins with the principle of the matter, starting with an illustration, something that would have been very plain to the Galatians, something that they would have all known, and something they would have all affirmed as true. He says, to give it a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. That means, uh, that's to say that within a human society, there are agreements which, once they take effect, are irrevocable. When we bought our house, we signed a contract. And when that contract went through, the former owner lost any claim on the house or on the property. Uh, if, if I found them in the garage, they would be trespassing, even though it once belonged to them. That property became ours with the signing of that agreement. And obviously other agreements could be made. We could sell the property. But that particular agreement is done. It's been ratified. And so it's set in stone. If that's the case with man-made agreements, Paul then is saying, well, how much more is it true in the case of the covenants that God has made? This point is important. Because it helps us understand why Paul is able to distinguish between God's covenant with Abraham and the covenant that God made with Israel when, it was, when they were at Mount Sinai. In appealing to the culture of the Galatians, how they themselves understood that when two people made a covenant, there was no going back, Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If a man-made covenant is unable to be changed and modified once it's been ratified, then Paul is saying how much more are the promises that God made to Abraham when, when he made his covenant with him in stone, set, It will not change. If God's covenants could become null or void, if if they can be added to or taken away from, then there's a possibility that the promises God made to, to Abraham and to his offspring could also become null and void. But that's unthinkable. Not even Paul's opponents would be willing to say that. The problem is that by elevating the law of Moses, saying that the only way you could be a partaker in the blessing of Abraham through the law... Uh, these men had, perhaps without realizing it, effectively emptied the promise of its power. They had made it null and void. The promise that God gave to, to Abraham was a blessing of righteousness and eternal life that was received by faith, not works. That's what we read in verse 11, where Paul quotes uh, from Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith. That promise came before the law. And the order matters, according to Paul, because it means that we have to understand the Mosaic Law and the covenant God made with Israel on Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt within the promise that God had already made to Abraham. And this is important because, as Paul has already shown us in verses 6 through 14, that God has secured the blessings of Abraham for the world 
through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, that's clear because of the connection he makes now in verse 16, where he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying simply this, that the covenant God made with Abraham finds its terminus, its fulfillment, its yes and amen in Christ, who is that promised offspring that God spoke about. More about that in a bit, but for now, let's understand why Paul is so concerned that we get the order of these covenants right. In verse 17, Paul reminds us that God's covenant promises to Abraham came before the Mosaic covenant and the giving of the law. The Mosaic covenant was not a replacement for the Abrahamic covenant. Since Paul says it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. God's covenant with Abraham and his covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai are both extremely important for making sense of how God has been at work throughout history to save his people and to exalt Jesus as king overall. But they are, in fact, distinct. The Mosaic Covenant carried with it a blessing and a curse. The blessing was for Israel if they kept the covenant. God said he would bless them with the land, that he would dwell with them as their God, and they would be with him as his people in the land. The curse was that if Israel broke the covenant, he says that he would not let his presence remain with them, but would cast them out of the land, just as he had cast the Canaanites out of the land for their sin. So the blessings of the Mosaic covenant were contingent on keeping the law. That's a problem, because as Paul has shown us, no one can keep the law because of the sin that dwells within each and every one of us. Now the Abrahamic covenant was different. <laughs> Because it focused on what God was doing to save his people and to bless the world through Abraham and through his offspring. When you look at, when, at the moments when God gives that promise and gives that covenant in Genesis 12, you'll notice that when the pieces of the covenant are laid out, Abraham doesn't walk through it. He's asleep. God was the only one who went through it showing Abraham that this promise was sure, that it was a matter of God's doing, not Abraham's. Paul is emphatically saying that the Mosaic law, the law that these false teachers were saying that the Galatian churches had to keep if they wanted to get that blessing that God had promised Abraham, Paul's emphatically saying that that covenant did not make God's promise to Abraham null and void, nor did it alter the promise. But just as God counted Abraham righteous because of his faith, so all who believe in Christ, who is the offspring, are, being, are made partakers in that blessing, since he is the one who God had promised would come and secure that blessing for them. Hopefully, you're seeing a little bit about why it was such a big deal last week for us to say that all who are of faith are children of Abraham. Because it means that all who trust in Christ are blessed with him. If we share in Abraham's faith, trusting in Jesus, who is our Redeemer, and the one who secures God's blessing through his life and his death and his resurrection and his rule and reign, then we are connected to an immovable promise that God made thousands of years ago. The false gospel that was gaining traction in Galatia was wrong 
Not because it said, well, we need to pull out these pieces, but because it had misordered the pieces. It got the order wrong. By wrongly emphasizing the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law, it was emptying the cross of its power, and it was substituting a works-based righteousness for the promise that God had made to Abraham. That's what Paul is getting at at the second part of verse 18 when he says, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But this is a problem because we see that God gave it to Abraham by a promise. A promise that he has kept. In Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2, the Lord appeared to Abram. And we see in that moment, he changes Abram's name. He calls him Abraham. And he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now God explains to us in his word, specifically in Romans 4, that Abraham's obedience was a response of his faith. And that the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We read that in Romans 4.13. Paul goes on in Romans 4.16 to say, It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. A story of redemption has always been a story of grace. And I want you to get that. Because when you read the Old Testament, it's easy to be consumed by the commands, do this, don't do that, and to start thinking, well, God really has changed his mind, hasn't he? But that is not the case at all. Paul shows us clearly that the purpose of the law is not to tell us how we can obtain righteousness through our works, but that how we can receive that as a matter of God's grace through faith. Righteousness has never been bought with a person's works because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ever since Genesis 3.20, when Adam called his wife's name Eve in response to God's promise that he would send a snake crusher who would redeem them, righteousness has always been a matter of faith, received through faith in the faithfulness of God, which has been realized in Jesus Christ, who's the true offspring, the new and better Adam, who saves his people. Paul puts a lot of emphasis here on the order of salvation and the order of the story of salvation. If the Bible were just a collection of random events, it would be very hard to make the case that he does that righteousness is not a matter of works of the law, but a matter of faith in Christ who has secured the blessing that God had made to, to, to Abraham and the promise, which is our salvation. But the Bible clearly isn't random. And we learn to appreciate the Bible in all its parts and what it tells us about the grace and the love of God when we read it according to the structure it has within it, which tells us about the way that God has revealed his plan of redemption more and more specifically up through time in his covenants until everything comes together in Jesus Christ. Now, you can think about this like a mountain. The Bible is laid out in a way like a mountain. A mountain is wide at its base. But the tallest mountains are small at their top. They are specific. If you were climbing them and you fell, you might impale yourself on them. Well, the Bible grows more and more specific as you come to its peak. God told Adam very broadly that he would send a redeemer. And then out of all the families of the earth, God chose a wandering 
Chaldean Abraham, who was a pagan, and he chose to make him and his family a blessing to the nations. That blessing became more specific as the law opened people's eyes to sin. And it opened and laid the pathway for understanding how God was going to remove the curse of sin by becoming visible in the temple and then in the sacrifices. Then the Bible tells us about how God raised up David as a king and then told him that he would have an offspring who would sit on an eternal throne, who would inherit the nations and rule in righteousness. And then Jesus came, the son of David, the true Israel, the better Adam, the Noah who brings rest, the offspring that God promised to Abraham. All of it leads to one person, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who brings all of this about. And it's in Jesus that God's self-revelation comes out to an all-out, brilliant expression of its fullness. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, we read in Colossians 1, that through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. When we read the Bible... It's not our job to bring significance to it. There's lots of wise sayings out there that can help you live your life well. But the Bible is not the sort of thing that we have to bring our experience to to make it significant or important. It will do that on its own. More than that, when we read and understand the story that the Bible tells about God, His grace and His perfect plan to bring salvation to sinners like you and me, we'll be able to see the significance of our own story. We'll see, as Paul has shown us, that we really can't trust in our own works to save us because God, from the beginning, has been about exalting Jesus as the Savior of the world and making him a blessing to the nations. I like the way one author talks about it when he says uh, about why seeing the whole story of redemption matters. He says, Every reader knows that the details of a story take on a different shape and perspective when we know the end of the story. Looking back, we realize that Jesus is the only true offspring of Abraham, the only one who faithfully did God's will. He is the one who removed the curse of the law on the cross. Escape from the present evil age only comes through him. So if we're to comprehend the God who is at work to save the lost and to secure our freedom, we need to start by seeing the the work of Christ on the cross and to see it within the terms of the whole story that the Bible tells us. So, that is Paul's word about the order. The second thing we, we, we learn, uh, and we learn how to trust the power of the cross, is in understanding the purpose of the law. If the law of Moses and the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai wasn't meant to alter or change or replace the promise that God made to Abraham, if God was already bringing salvation to the world through that promise and through that blessing, then what on earth is the purpose of the law, we ask? Well, that's the question that Paul asks in verse 19. And it's an important one because so much of the Bible was written between when God made his covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai and when Jesus came to actually fulfill God's promise by going to the cross. If the uh, the salvation that God promised has always been secured in the blessing of his grace, which he promised to Abraham, which is why it has always been a matter of faith, then the question is, why do we need the law? Why did God give the law? Why does the Bible even celebrate the law the way that it does? Well, in the first part of verse 19, 
Paul explains that the law was added because of transgression, which is another word for sin, for breaking God's law. He says that it was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now there's two things I want to show you from this. First of all, notice that Paul says that the law was added. It is not an extension of the Abrahamic covenant, but an addition meant to serve and God is to serve and guard God's God's people to show them the way they ought to live. It was added not because people were doing a good job of living by faith, but because of their sin. It was added because of transgression. Now Romans 5 verse 20 explains more about the addition of the law. It says that the law came in to increase the trespass, which is to say that the law came to show that it was not through works of the law that anyone could be made right with God. The law rather shines on the darkness of our sin. It has no power in and of itself to remove the problem of sin from us. It can only make us more aware of our weakness and more aware of our deadness. The, the addition of the law gives us a nose to smell the rottenness of our dead souls. And it makes us rely completely on grace. Since where sin increased, we're told that grace has abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law prepared the way for grace to be received and for Christ to be exalted over all. The second thing I want you to see about this is that Paul says that the law had a termination point. That it was only in force until the offspring arrived to make God's promise to Abraham a reality. Now we know from verse 16 that this offspring Paul is talking about is in fact Christ. If you're thinking, well, what, how does he do that? This is where you can accept the fact that, um, that God has put Jesus forward to fulfill the law. The authority of the scriptures say that Jesus is the one who fulfills that promise. He rules, he reigns, and his people are made righteous through faith in him. Jesus ushers in a new age and a new covenant that fulfills all of God's salvation promises. Now, in understanding how this works, the author of Hebrews is extremely helpful. In Hebrews 9.11, he says that when Christ... I read this every time we have the Lord's Supper for a reason, okay? This is, this is what he says. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, what? An eternal redemption. Therefore, the author tells us, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, the promise given to Abraham. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. In verse 24, he says that Jesus entered into heaven itself, of which the holy of holies in the temple was merely a copy. In chapter 10, verse 1, he explains that the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So you can see why it is so important to Paul to show us that the law had a purpose, but that that purpose was not to be our salvation. 
The Galatians were being told otherwise by these false teachers. And it's obvious now, to us now at least, on the basis of what Paul has said about the law, that it was meant to be a temporary institution that gave way when Christ came. Paul further emphasizes to the Galatians how this was a temporary thing through the way that the law was received. He says, It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, this is not the only place we read about the law being talked about as being received from angels. Uh, We can read about in Acts 7. Stephen says as much there, and then the author of Hebrews says so in Hebrews chapter 2. Um, This intermediary that Paul's referring to is likely talking to Moses, who brought the law to the people. And this section has given scholars fits. So when you read this and you go, "Uh, I don't know what this means, you're not alone. The scholars kind of go, oh, this is written weird. Um, But what becomes clear in the context of what Paul is saying, and the point he's trying to make out of verses 19 through 20, is that we can only... Is that we can see the superiority of the promise God made to Abraham, not only in the order, since, since it was given first, but that we can see the significance of the promise God made to Abraham in the manner in which the law was given. Since God made his covenant with Abraham directly, whereas in Moses, his covenant was given through mediation. The big point here is simply this, that the promise God made to Abraham was meant to endure. Whereas the law had its place, but it has now been outshined in the arrival of the offspring that God had promised to send, who is Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we should cut the Old Testament or the law out of our Bibles. After all, Scripture, and all of Scripture we are told, including the law, is God's inspired and authoritative word. The law helps us understand how deep our sin goes. It's still important. It's still relevant because it teaches us what it means to be dead in your trespasses and in your sins. The law convicts us. The law demands justice. The law thunders at us when we wander from the path of grace and try to claw our way into God's favor through doing our own good works. The law is good. It is painful. But it is good. And it's good and necessary because of our sin. The author of Hebrews tells us that we must pay closer attention to ourselves and to what we have heard in the gospel, lest we find ourselves drifting from it the way the Galatians had. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience receives a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So Jesus has a greater ministry. He has the ministry of salvation, not just conviction. And he calls us to that salvation through faith in him. The Galatians were forsaking that message for something that was intended to serve a purpose. Uh, they, were, they were forsaking that message of grace, and they were going after and serving a purpose within a purpose. Living in the freedom of Christ means living in the new covenant that he has set up through his death and resurrection. And God has a way of assuring us of the power of the cross when we see the reason he gave us the law in the first place. Now, the third and final way we learn to trust in the power of the cross of Christ is by 
seeing how we have received the freedom that he has purchased for us through faith in him. The law had a purpose. It still has a purpose because it serves as the standard of God's perfection. When God says, be holy as I am holy, we don't necessarily know what that means because all we know is this broken world. We need to know what that means until the law proclaims to us just how fallen we are. All who try to secure themselves through their own righteousness, the Bible tells us, are condemned by the law because of our sin. We just simply can't measure up to God's standard of holiness. So, Paul tells us in verse 21 that the law is not contrary to the promises of God. Even though it came after, the, after the, the, uh, God had made his promise to Abraham and to his offspring, it did not annul or change that promise because it never professed to be the means of getting righteousness. The law never said that you will get righteousness if you just keep more of that and, and not all of it. No, the law, as has been very clearly displayed to us in the book of Galatians, can't make us righteous. It can't make us alive. It can only tell us that we are dead. And its goal has always been to point us to Christ by pointing, at, pointing out to us how weak we are in and of ourselves. The men who were troubling the churches in Galatia telling them that they had to keep the law in order to gain the blessings of Abraham for themselves. Blessings which Paul has demonstrated um, in force only come through faith in Christ alone were treating the law wrongly. They were bending it to serve their own purposes. And in the second part of verse 21, Paul concedes that if the law had been given, if, if a law had been given which could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But that is not what scripture says. No, verse 22. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was just impressed with how deep this passage is and how theologically rich it is. And I just kept thinking, I hope I don't overwhelm everyone on Sunday. So we have dealt with some deep Stuff We have jumped off into the deep end. I don't want anyone to drown in this. We've dealt with some complex issues this morning. If you, wanna, if you have been lost here, you need to come back. This is one verse. You can boil everything we've talked about down to one verse. Verse 22. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin to make us fly to Christ who sets us free by the promise of faith in him. That, that's, a, that's the basis of what we've said this morning. That scripture imprisoned everything under sin to show us indeed that we are sinful, to make us fly to Christ to receive the promise of eternal life through faith in him. Now this is not unlike what we read in Romans 11, verses 29 through 32, where Paul explains, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by, mercy, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God has a purpose. The mercy of God has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. God's design for creation is to exalt Jesus, his own beloved, only begotten son, 
as Lord over all, to the praise of his glory and to the praise of his grace. God would be within his right to permit each of us to go our own way, blinded by the darkness of our sin, wise to nothing except for what is our corruption. But instead, he gave the law and he gave his word to show us how far we have fallen in our disobedience. And then he gives the Spirit, who through the law convicts us of our sin and makes us fly to Christ to receive the free mercy that he himself has purchased for us according to his very great promises, the promise that was given to Abraham in the first place. Now you have probably heard it said that freedom isn't free. And well, that is true. Freedom came at a great cost, not to you, not to me, but to Jesus himself who took the curse of our sin and paid for it, nailing it to the cross when he suffered there. In him we die to the demands of the law, and in him we find the promise of God's mercy, and in him we find the promise of eternal life. It's important for us to remember that though the law had a purpose to play, the law can't make anyone alive. It's been said that a cage may have iron bars that prevent a lion from eating a lamb, but that it has no strength to prevent the lion from wanting to eat the lamb. The law is like an iron cage that can prevent us from doing things because we fear the consequences. But it cannot enact in us what God requires of each of us, which is to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The law can't make you have that reality within you. It can only condemn you for when you break that law. The law cannot keep us from being stained by sin. It can only point out that we are in fact stained by it. We need Christ, and we won't know that we need Christ if God doesn't show the wickedness of our own hearts. That's the purpose of the law. The Galatians got the purpose of the law mixed up because they thought they could get freedom by going and sitting in that iron cage. Jesus came to remove us from that cage. And not only to remove us from that cage, but to change our desires, to give us new hearts, to give us true freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from sin's rule, freedom to live with him as co-heirs with him in faith. This was God's design from the beginning. For everyone who is set free through faith in the Son, this is what moves us to exalt Him in all, and what will move us to exalt Him in eternity as we live in the presence of His glory, in the presence of King Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham. So what does this mean for us? It simply means that the promise of freedom is for those who believe. So the appeal I have for you this morning, I know that most, if not all of you, are professing believers. That you have heard this gospel, that you have believed it, that you hope in it, and my joy is made full by that. But believing the gospel is a daily thing. When you wake up, you remember that you are caught up within this great story of God's redemption and that you have been made right with God if you have trusted in Christ by faith, and that you have been given the strength to live accordingly by His Spirit. Every day begins with that conviction. 
Every decision flows from a heart of praise to that king. If you haven't believed that, or if you realize this morning, you know what, I have been trusting in myself and my own works, the time to seize this promise is now. Because the time of God's mercy is now. And that time does not last forever. So trust Christ for your salvation. And then let everyone else know that you're doing that. Christ has come to set us free. Praise God for that liberty. Let's pray. Lord, in your word, you have exposed us to a freedom that is better than just being free from the influence of an earthly government. Father, this morning you have shown us a freedom that is worth more than life, that is worth more than anything we could gain in this world because it endures forever. Jesus told those who followed him to set up for themselves treasure that is in heaven and not treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in to steal. And we know and are convinced that the treasure he spoke of is the treasure of grace and the promise that you made to Abram so many years ago in which you realized in the person of Christ and are exalting now as you expand your kingdom and as you cause us to hope in the promise of eternal life that you've made to us. Father, I ask that you would give us hearts that beat with freedom. Beat with freedom from sin and beat with the desire to see those who were caught up still in the slavery that we were caught up in, the slavery to sin, slavery to Satan, living as citizens of the kingdom of darkness, set free. Father, give us a vision for that. Make us co-liberators with Jesus as we bring the beggars that sin has made us and we were beggars and that we have found a place to find real and lasting and nourishing food. Help us to bring them to Christ. Work in the lives of the people who we share this gospel with. Make the seeds that we cast bear fruit And not just fruit that springs up quickly or fruit that is choked out by the cares of this world, but fruit that endures to eternity. We we pray, Father, that you would exalt King Jesus in us as, as we commit ourselves to be workers in his field. We want to be laboring in the field of Christ. Nothing else matters. Because eternity is a long time. And by comparison, this life is a vapor. Help us to remember this, Lord, and and make us fruitful. We know that only you can change a heart and open it to faith. And yet you have called us to, to be sowers of the seed, fishers of men, and we ask that we would do this and do it effectively, and that as we do, we would exalt the heir, the offspring, the promised one, Jesus Christ. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.